0: Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as what didn't, and we talk about it all. This series features a deep dive into the DMG Rule Supplement series of books. What advice can we take from these books and use in our current games? On the eighth day of Edition Wars, my DM gave to me The Complete Book of Villains. This 2 resource source book was written by Kirk Botula and was published in 1994. DMGR 6 was the sixth in a series of nine DM-focused books for second edition AD&D. You might recognize these as the blue faux leather softcover books. Last time we left off, we covered uh, chapters one through five in what is surely a record for us um, <laughs> uh, like especially the front of books were really bad about just <laughs> slowing down <laughs> so here we are in chapter six monsters into villains uh surprisingly brief chapter all told um it's, it's not so brief trivial, i'm not
1: i'm not even sure it's needed to be perfectly honest they could have just uh, formed it in in with the, you know, as a as a sec- section in one of the other chapters. You know, um, I I agree with you largely, but they wanted to include
0: you know a couple of examples because this is a book about showing your work, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, this book getting to show its work is sort of the the counter case of why all the other books don't get to show their work like. This has the the page count available, right? And, yeah. and still in a generous font size, as we've mentioned a couple times.
1: You know um, you're right. i i will I will reverse my statement. I think you're absolutely right. It's okay that this has. Maybe what I should say is I wanted a little bit more out of this chapter. Oh,
0: sure. no, I, I think that's reasonable. I do think that the the specific use case they hit up in the the opening block, um, it's funny to me. Because that is just literally an encounter I was in, not quite verbatim, but awfully close, in uh, Tomb of Annihilation on Tuesday.
1: Really? Oh, yep. oh! you must be in... Oh, I know where you are. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yes, that's where we are. Oh, that's awesome. Yes, yeah, that's and, a fun place. We're avoiding spoilers, folks. <laughs> yeah.
0: the, the DM is doing some uh, like additional lore in that area to tie in orc stuff yeah, and yeah. to give me some some personal story so nice. I'm playing a, an orc ranger in that game mm-hmm. and it was just my dice could not have been colder in the three times <laughs> I rolled initiative yeah, uh, I rolled a uh, a three, a one, and a two
1: ow, holy crap,
0: like rough yeah Uh, th- there was a whole fight where I did not get to take an action because the fight was over before
1: my action. Wow. It was rough. That is, you know, that's, I I am not a proponent of dice jail, but that is a perfect example of a die that needs to go to jail. (laughs) That is, that's, that's harsh. Ouch. Oh man. Uh, But back to this example, Um, I quite like what they do with this example, uh, monstrous villain throughout the rest of the book, because they, 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 Quite flesh her out, and um, and it works the way that they do it. It works.
0: Yeah, um, I, I I think that's I think that's very true. I think that like th- this is a classic for a reason. Absolutely. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Like Medusa as monster is practically off theme. Mm-hmm. Um, like if we were just talking about um, the the mythical Medusa still wrong. Like she right. is a person who is monstrous. Yes. Not a, a monster who is sort of a person. Right. Within mm-hmm. the the narrative convention of Berseus' story. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah he kills her. But like, a lot of bad stuff happened to her as a person. Right. And right. um I think that's it's interesting and noteworthy. And also boy does the art here lean into super close to being um a, you know, j- just a person with weird hair uh, mm. who likes to show some leg, I guess. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and some cleavage. Don't, don't discount the cleavage. I, it's Accurate, funny because I was, yes. I was going to, I was going to comment on this art in that. I, I don't know what the weird uh thing is with the eyes through the coin veil, but. Oh,
0: like they're, they're trying to show. I have oh, a cool for game. For sure. Game, right? I know,
1: but come on. <laughs> just. yeah. No, I get you. Um, also but, the this the statue of the Sphinx that's next to her looks like it's wearing an ewok hat <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry it just does yeah um the thing is though <laughs> what's really funny is I'm sort of making fun of it but the art's actually not bad the no it's, art, it's actually fine yeah it, it evokes exactly the feel that you get from the previous pages discussion about what's happening here
0: i, I um, mean i'll be real this art stuck with me pretty hardcore for the last uh yeah. substantially over 20 years
1: yeah yeah there's a I, lot it does right which is why i i'm sort of i'm being pretty harsh when i comment yeah, yeah. about the things i don't like about it but because everything else about it i actually like it's it's not a bad piece for sure it's not the best um, piece also don't
0: get no. Me wrong. i mean it's not yeah it's not the most amazing but the the, the coin veil is pretty
1: cool yeah 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 and the way the snakes are coming out of the turban is really and the the sort of uh, Egyptian esque uh, hieroglyphs on on the whole it, it, it has a lot of tone here that yep. is that is very mysterious and evocative
0: yep um, and that that's very cool um, real kind of Greco Egyptian mm-hmm. deal we get going on right, um, right, right. anyway um, the, the text Wants to talk to you about modifying and freely interpreting the original. And I think that um, for me, probably especially in second ed, I needed the kick in the pants of uh, use the monster manual as a creative springboard, not a straitjacket. I just right. needed to be, I need to have that hammered into my head like 50% harder mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I didn't have. Like comfort as a designer, then, right? Right. That that wasn't on the table for me, um, which is not to say that I didn't try. But like feeling comfortable with the system and really kicking the tires was was not yet mm-hmm. my deal. Um, but
1: um, yeah, uh, yeah.
0: It's, like it's it's talking about how to like build primary villains and mm-hmm. touches on uh, Dragonlance and Ravenloft. Like good good going. Very good.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, it it talks about what makes a good – what are good characteristics for a creature to have if you're going to select it to become a villain. Um, What you need to do to sort of flesh out those characteristics and the ideas of applying the the ideas that it talks about in the first chapter kind of as a template – it's not formatted as a template, but that's kind of the the idea they're going for here of, okay, pick a monster. Here's what you should look for when you're picking a monster. And then now that you've picked this monster that that matches the majority of those, those sort of characteristics or those things you should think about, now go back and apply what we did in the first chapter onto this to create the villain rather than just say, okay, that's the monster I pick. It's automatically the villain. You have to do a little bit of work to to mold it into that which is fair i think right and
0: the discussion of like this monster needs to have a society and needs to be able to like relate to others either as equals or as servants yep good point absolutely Mm -hmm.
1: right um
0: yeah and and so this is where it really jumps out at me that uh in second ed monsters don't have charisma scores they have intelligence mm-hmm. scores only, but no other ability scores for, you know, reasons. Right, right. Um,
1: yeah. And, and, and that's like part it, of the reason also why it then mentions alignment, right? Right. And, um, and that,
0: that strikes me just because a, a monster of quite forgettable intelligence, but that is very charismatic, should work as well as – it. it say, a warlord of very middling to forgettable intelligence, but extraordinary charisma.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Which you would consider a perfectly reasonable villain
1: to throw at the PCs. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think the monsters are are sort of more seat of your pants, right? And so they're giving you an intelligence score really basically so that you can know, for lack of a better phrasing, whether that creature is going to act smart or act dumb, right? Right. Whether it's going to be mostly instinctual or whether it's going to have some sort of intelligence beyond itself, right? And in general, that's all you need at the time of the design. That in general, that's the thought was that's all you need, right? If you want that creature to have a certain amount of charisma, then you just as the DM role play it as if it has charisma. But it's not necessary to have the statistic. What was the prevailing sort of thought, but it was kind of necessary to know the exact intelligence, right? Because that yeah. has an effect on, for example, spell casting or whatever. Um, uh, so, sure. you know, it, it's, it, it's a thing, right? It's a thing. It's fine. Um, right. Within the confines of, of those strictures, then you get, you get this, a couple of examples here, which are not bad.
0: Uh, right. Yeah. Um. And you know, I, I like the, the like the discussion of monster problems. Um, mm. I would like it even more with a d eight or d ten table. Uh, well, or may, even a, just
1: uh, more than it, one example, right? And and so in this case, in most of this book, when they give an example, then they elaborate on it a great deal. And this one is a really interesting point they're making about, for example, things from the outer planes and then they give like a two sentence example
0: right like yeah th- th- there's there's hints of good good suggestions here mm-hmm. just the the benefit and throughput that could have been wrought out of a a maybe d10 table per just basic creature type yeah. even though that mm-hmm. gen- is you know, still much too general but I'm thinking of you know the the things that go on in um, Tasha's for mm-hmm. gifts to give yeah that that kind of thing mm-hmm. but for um, monstrous villain motives would have been phenomenal. Um, also, I'm finding that this is really sending me off into a weird uh, question of, but what if you did have an ooze as the villain? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. How weird can you make that? It's probably gross. And, you know, obviously there's what the thing yeah. to, to play with here. and mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, horror has been doing this for a long time, but just variations on that spring to mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, this section isn't bad, but it, it could use a lot of elaboration. And, uh, you know, in terms of the tables, what you're asking for, there is a section right in the back of the book where it tries to sort of... Um, provide some tables it's sorely lacking though but i I think the problem though is the layout of this book you know i i praise i i praise this book in many ways it has a really nice font the layout's easy to read uh it has really usually very well defined section breaks and headers there's a couple that end up confusing because of the coloration but um You know, for the most part, this is an easy book to read, but it still comes off as wall of text. And it would be much better if it was broken up with some rolly tables, random tables, or um, you know, even just bullet points. Which occasionally they they end up with something like bullet points. But uh, the layout of this book is very dated for the density of, of text. And this book, this probably has been the hardest book to read so far, not because it's difficult to read. It's, it's actually easy to read. Uh, The the wording is nicely done. You know, it's not like it's worded like some antiquarian, you know, academic text or something, but it is so dense and there's not a lot breaking up each piece and you have to take it all in. And it's a slow read.
0: Yeah ultimately it's it's perfectly cromulent prose i I have no complaints about that um but yep it it is it is a lot of text Mm -hmm. um and uh, we we talked about this a good bit last time i think after we stopped recording that (laughs) yeah uh, yeah because because we're super cool super good like that um (laughs) but it, it amounts to um This book is here to inform you before you start working on the campaign to just build a whole foundation of thought in your mind and be a workbook uh, that you refer to, you know, a session or two before the villain has their first action that affects the PCs in any way. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, well before they actually show up in person, probably. Yeah. um, It's still... It's uh, still a very good book for all that. It's just its its specific use case is substantially different from what you would see elsewhere. Um, but honestly, a, a book of essays on great villains, fairly timeless content.
1: Right. Yeah. See, that's the thing is the content's really good. And the, the methodology that they're presenting is mostly good with a couple of things that... I would take exception to only because so much time has passed now and we do things a little bit differently now and the sort of thoughts about design and the way the game works are a little bit different, but ultimately it's a really good resource and it's something that you read before you're planning your big campaign, your big homebrew campaign for the first time where you're going to create your villain from scratch, this is what you read first. You let it percolate in the back of your mind. And then as you're planning out sort of how how the campaign, you know, what your major events or, or major effects are or wh- whatever it is, however your, the campaign you're planning is going, before you even start it, now you go back to this after you've had some time away and you say, okay, now I'm going to create my villain. And you sort of take all of these things to heart and use them as tools to create your villain. And then, as you just said, then in the game, once the game is going, as it gets to the point where, okay, the villain's going to make an appearance or their their cronies are going to make an appearance or there's going to be something. Then you revisit this and make sure that you've got the information that you need down so that you can run it well. And that means this is a book of homework, Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This isn't a book where you're going to flop it open in the middle of the session because you forgot something and it's going to be a nicely formatted, you know, three bullet points. Oh, yeah, those are the things I need to remember. Or, oh, "Oh, yeah, that or whatever. And then you use it and then you move on. That's not what this is. Oh, no. No, no, no. And to some extent, that's not what DMGR 1 is either, that we also heaped a bunch of praise on and spent four right. episodes on. That's also not what that is. But that book has such a varied content that you can just open it two hours before a game, read a few pages, and it'll get your wheels turning. And you'll right. be able to sort of use that in the game because it, it made your creative juices start flowing. Right. And,
0: like, can- I actually have a lot of respect for the examples they work out with uh, 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 Lady Sillith here. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Like she's motivated by um, a an absolute distaste for the mortal races, except for their artwork, and so she's basically an art collector, an art patron, um, and mm-hmm. that's it's a nice twist. I'm, I'm into it. I, I can. See, making that really cool, and I immediately know how to implement that.
1: Right, and 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 her need is for affiliation, but she really doesn't like other people, so she turns them all to stone. (laughs) Right, like that is a such a strange like. She just doesn't like people, but she really feels the need to be around them. But you know, like this is, they do a decent job of, of applying, as I said, the sort of almost template from the first chapter to her and then they even give us uh oh and then they give us a little sort of monsters as henchmen right up here it's basically the same thing as the crony faction chapter that we that we read but it's just applying it to monsters and what their henchmen would be like it's very short it's not even its own chapter and then they give us one they give us an example of one which is also pretty well done the way that they've that they've uh, presented it and it it elaborate it ends up elaborating on the initial warlord enemy baksra that we we met, right? So it's more of his retinue.
0: And I really like that they are continuing with that um, Mm -hmm. because they've now gotten to a nuanced enough story to really kind of be somewhere. um, If you just need Mm -hmm. an out-of-the-box villain, this book has one for you, just one, but it's a pretty good one. Right. Um,
1: Well, it ends up with three at the end that are pretty well- described Um, this one's the biggest one
0: yeah so so the other thing interesting about this of course is that the the monster henchman is is now just a pc race is a kenku right yes that's true uh,
1: yeah that's
0: a that's a you know historical note that is really more relevant than ever right this minute in Mm -hmm. gaming discourse right um as yeah, you know, Watsi is trying to draw new lines between sort of this is a person and this is a monster, mm-hmm. uh, and Kenku are very firmly on the person side, you know, in the right. the present imagining, mm-hmm. which I think is cool and correct, right? Um, but there are also uh, some other examples from. Uh, you know, surrounding media uh, talking about uh, odd job in Goldfinger and the flying mm-hmm. monkeys in mm-hmm. uh, Wizard of Oz. So that's pretty cool, and that is going to be all for chapter six. Like we said, quite brief. Um, yeah, the, the Kinku assassin gets uh, essentially a paragraph and a bit,
1: mm-hmm. um, and which, to be honest, though is okay in this context
0: it, it is yeah like for, for what his role is going to be in the game
1: mm-hmm. pretty much fine right
0: um it, we also did, you might say hey a stat block would be nice but even that's it's fine
1: yeah but we also get a uh, we get the little the, the thing at the beginning of this section isn't is, an, is uh, the little uh, prose whatever part about him the example part is about him so he gets a little bit of life there um I'm looking to see if he's actually outlined later because they have a whole chapter where they outline many of these. Um, Don't think he's one of them. Nope. I don't think so. Anyway, we'll get there. Um, So that brings us to chapter seven. And chapter seven is about uh, advancing or using your villains in an advanced way by allowing them to be recurring villains or allowing them to be rivals first. Then they talk about mythic or symbolic villains and then faceless villains. This is quite an extensive chapter. And then it gets, and this is why I wanted to go through this, uh, to this part, is then it gets to the sympathetic enemy. So it actually revisits that whole issue that we had. Yep. Um, and then it ends the chapter with a, a little discussion about alignment. So. Uh, it's kind of now is saying, okay, well, if you've done the things that we've talked about in chapters one through six, now you're ready to, uh, to do something that's a little slightly bit more advanced. And you still need to hear about it before you're doing your campaign as part of your prep, as part of your planning, because it requires that. But now that you've had time to sort of absorb those other chapters, now let's go on to something a little bit more advanced.
0: Right. the the sense for me here is very much okay. In the early chapters, we establish one rule. If you have internalized that enough, now you're ready to break that rule and go to a more nuanced rule. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is all more nuanced content that right. you know explicitly hasn't forgotten what they told you in the earlier chapters. Right. It references. Hey, I know we told you this before. Here's exactly what we're trying to say as we add more nuance. And I I really appreciate that because I think it uh, follows the path of learning really well.
1: Right. Right. Um, I wish that it would tell you so though, because what's well, so what's really helpful is if when you start, you know where you're going. I mean, from a learning perspective and if in chapter one, and maybe it does say this and i'm just blanking on it but if in chapter 1 it said you know we're going to talk about some th- you know some ways to make this villain more advanced in later chapters and we're specifically going to talk about these four things i feel like that sort of preview would have been helpful because okay. You know, my, so here's the thing is I read the first half of the book and then we did the episode and then I read the second half of the book and now we're doing the episode. So I did not, I haven't, I mean, I read it, you know, 32 years ago or whatever, when it came out, but I hadn't read it in that long and now I'm reading it again. And and so I feel like just from the, you're talking about the learning process, it it's helpful to give a idea of what's coming up later. Yeah. And it's not, you know, that's not a fatal flaw or anything like that, and it doesn't make the book bad or whatever. But some of the criticisms I feel like I had about the first five or six chapters, yeah, go away when I when you look at the later chapters. And if I had known those were coming, maybe my criticism would have been less uh, sharp. You know what I mean? It would have been a more like I, you know, apparently we're going to hear about this later. I will critique it at that point. You know?
0: Yeah, like it it line something like. We're gonna revisit this in chapter seven. Mm-hmm. Would have been okay. Yeah. Um, but you know, that, that also speaks to the intended use of the book, which is a chapter by chapter workbook slash read through that is directly uh, contrary to the reference book approach we've talked about for D D books in general.
1: Yeah. Okay. I mean, I can accept that.
0: Um, like uh, I, I, I'm agreeing that it's a little unusual. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I think that I think what we've just talked about indicates that.
1: Right. And so here's the thing then. So the problem really isn't. Like you, you've you that been taught to read a is. different way, you know? Yeah. But, the, but the thing is like, I guess the issue is. Yeah maybe it, yeah I'll have to cut this but I, so I guess for me so the the issue then is that if this is going to be different from the majority of the books which are referenced – I mean this it is dungeon master guide rules supplement it's a reference book right yep um like the other ones are and so yeah so breaking from that sort of pattern maybe that's that's what's the issue is yeah i agree yeah anyway so So recurring villains is discussed um, and they, and they give as an example, a new, a new recurring villain. Um, And later on, they're going to end up uh, putting all, all they're going to introduce yet another villain. And then, so then at the end, there's going to be sort of four main villains and they're going to then put those all together kind of in the same universe or same region with some of their examples later on, which I thought was a very nice nuanced way to show that you're not, this isn't a linear thing, right? This isn't because remember, remember what was it? Chapter two, which is really, uh, you know, how to, how to do an adventure or whatever it was.
0: (laughs) Right. How to structure structure a villain's arc. Right, And that villain's arc happens to also be an adventure.
1: Right, right, right. And so, and so this sort of, they're sort of, They're on a meta level. They're kind of showing that too, but you don't know it till the end. But in this Mm -hmm. case, it's okay that you don't know that. Like I wondered as I was reading this, oh, are they going to go to a completely new set of examples now, or are they going to tie all these people back together? And the answer is yes, they do. And I like that quite a bit. They did a good job of that. The, The examples in this the way that they do the examples in this, at first I thought, oh, this is going to be so tedious if they do these huge block examples every time. But the thing is that because they're telling a story with it and the way they're telling the story is meant to be an example of how something can work, it actually comes off very well done. Which well, so, surprised so, they're, me. so they're
0: vignettes. Um one of the really striking things about them is that they're written in a mix of uh, first and third person mm-hmm. style right. uh, leaning a bit toward even the third person ones are just first person where the eye doesn't speak right right yeah. um and that's fine but really strikingly they are not actual play scripts right <laughs> no,
1: they are they're prose right, right but but they are using terminology that is very prevalent from players' mouths in games,
0: uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a very plausible like right. novelization
1: vignette, right. exactly kind of deal, yeah,
0: and, and that's quite nice.
1: It's not it's not a you know Joe who plays Boris said this, and then the DM said this. It's not that it's not that sort of dialogue back forth thing. But even though you're reading it as more of a a, a literature style description of what was happening, you can completely fill in, in your head. Okay. Here's what happened. And then, Oh, the DM did this. So now they're saying that, right. Like it's, it's that well done that it's actually well-written and at the same time, you can get that other part of it. You get the meta out of it. Yep. Which is really good.
0: Uh, They do a good job of centering their point. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: But uh, I was going to move on to talking about keeping track of your villains. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's really funny because it talks about having a campaign calendar and this is, (laughs) this is one of those areas where, where the book is actually dated because it cannot, by virtue of when it was produced, suggest to you to use any of the sort of more modern tools that we use on our computers nowadays. um, Because those just were not widely available or, or widely produced in a format that were conducive to a DM running a game, using it as a, as a campaign Tool,
0: yep. Well, and uh, laptops and uh, you know, Microsoft Surfaces or whatever were mm. not uh, table ready, right? Right, Th- they were beasts,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. They were t- t- 30 30 to 40 pound uh, suitcases with a computer in it,
0: yeah. yeah. And and so, this is a, a like the, the tech difference really shows here, yeah. And like, that's fine, um.
1: But the but the example is nice and the the idea that it's presenting of why you should track it and how you should track it is very well done and very good. It's just not suggesting any tools that are modern in any respect. Yeah. Um, I like that it's basically doing kind of a bullet point. Okay, you're not writing a whole session report necessarily. for your tracking your villains moves is just, here was the amount of time that passed in that game session. Here's what the villain was doing. Bakshur was doing this. Dolgar was doing that. This other person was doing this, right? And just like one sentence, not an elaborate, like you're, now you can write an elaborate thing, but the example is very short and sweet, easy to review and get a good idea of what's going on.
0: I definitely feel a little bit sort of shamed for the, shoddy nature of my campaign notes from my last several campaigns you know screw you kurt you're not my dad well
1: this book was written specifically to shame you 32 years after its release how about that <laughs> or however long how long has it been when was this 1994 anyway it Is 94 yeah okay man the mold anyway uh so then they seven in- <laughs> years oh. later then they mr
0: uh, botula i <laughs> protest i must <laughs> protest
1: so the rival then introduces in this chapter the idea of a rival being an adversary who may just be not an enemy quite yet and definitely not a villain quite yet but the reason they're introducing is it, it is because number one it's a nice thing to have in your campaign but number two uh, it defines what a rival is and, and how they will have a relationship with the characters, whether it's that they're competing for a common goal or whether it's that they're uh, one of them is sort of double crossing or whether it's kind of a friendly, you know, frenemy kind of uh, relationship. It gives some good examples of those sorts of things. Um, and it also talks about how there might be a time where even though they're competing, they need to help each other. And that's a really great nuance that allows them to really build characterization to make that rival more than a two dimensional person who's, who's trying to steal their job basically. But it also makes the point that if something turns sour, it's possible for that rival to become a villain of the story. And that's basically why it's in this book.
0: Right. And, uh, Just the the value of antagonism without villainy is going to be a major through line of this chapter.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. Uh,
0: Right. And and that's absolutely worth engaging with and understanding. Mm -hmm. I also think this is very timely advice for our listeners since rivals are a major thing in Strixhaven.
1: Are they? Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, there's, there's There's a whole relationship system that, uh, Tracks uh, People's opinion of you Mm -hmm. All the way down into Like Antagonistic rival Right Uh, They they Maybe disappointingly Don't have Your Your frenemy rival Mm -hmm. The one that You know Enjoys competing with you And When you're not On the The Game board Or the field Or whatever You get along fine Mm
1: -hmm. Right Kind Kind of rival Yeah This
0: is one that actually kind of hates your guts.
1: Mm. Uh, that's sad.
0: Uh, it is. And there was a lot of commentary on that. And I'm sure the DM's gold has uh, yeah. addressed it forthwith.
1: Yeah. I also think it's really hard to do. So that's a, that's. Sure. And, and when you have an NPC like that uh, what you don't want to do is burden the DM with somebody who suddenly becomes this person who's always there, you know, like that's, sure. Yeah, but anyway, so that's a different topic.
0: But but done well, it's just an incredibly game enriching yeah. right. relationship because yeah. you feel something about them every time they show up. Mm-hmm. The thing might be negative, but by God, you felt mm-hmm. it, and that's yeah. actually what we're here for.
1: Yeah, um, and because it's a frenemy type thing, you know, you they are there to compete with you, but if some shit goes sideways, right? They're probably not going to let you die. Right. So even and, and if that, you hate that, that, that there's shift. There, is so right. great. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but so okay. so this tries to cover a little bit of that, um, and it gives it again. It gives these sort of vignette example things, and and that's fine. Um, it I think it has an appropriate amount of space in this book. I don't think they made it too overwrought, and I don't think they underwrote it. Um, yep. I I do wish there were. Again, and and I've probably said this, or you've said it about every chapter, I wish there were some, you know, roll on tables, give me some random tables, right? Give me me something that allows me to take this information and put it in a format that's other than a long form paragraph.
0: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Um, There's one part in here where. Right. And it, it did this in one of the previous chapters, too, where right in the middle of a paragraph, it starts like presenting basically game rules in long form prose. And mm. um, it's very like it's it's not it's must not be this chapter. So I'll talk about when we get there. But yeah. So um, anyway, then they move on to mythic or symbolic villains. They talk about deities, demigods, um, you know, one dimensional Characters, right?
0: P- people who have a like, essentially strictly symbolic role within the narrative, right? We're getting into some some pretty English major stuff here, mm-hmm. right? Which well, is fine think, for me.
1: Yeah, but I also think that it, I mean the way the examples written, I think it's fine. Um, even I'm if sure. you don't know who Miss Havisham is, they do a good enough job of describing her and what her what her main focus was and everything well enough. That, you know, so here's the thing. This book wants to make sure that it doesn't leave the DM feeling like every single person who could be an enemy of the party has to be completely fully fleshed out, three dimensional, a full villain template all the way, all rivals, all henchmen, everything all like it's not really aiming for that. So this is the part of the chapter where it's kind of saying, you know, here's some things to think about. And by the way. It's okay to have some sort of minor enemies or minor sort of pseudo villains in here that are kind of just one dimensional. It's all right. It's all right if you have a person who's one dimensional, who's kind of a rival or enemy, and who is easy for the party to figure out what their sort of main shtick is because it's so one dimensional. Like, that's okay Yep. to have some of those, right? Yep. And so I appreciate that it's doing that. Um, you know, it's fine.
0: Yeah, I mean, it kind of. At most, I feel like my impulse would have been to sort of develop more terminology that I could use in a sort of standard way right. to say, "Okay, well, like, because saying this is a a mythic or symbolic villain is maybe not enough connotation right off right off the bat."
1: Yeah. And then the subheading is just people. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah.
0: Um, So, and sort of monsters as symbols is a very important part of just understanding gaming and myth. Mm -hmm.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, Like
0: this thing is not a symbol for a a kind of people, it is a symbol for a thing you go through in life.
1: Right. Right. Uh,
0: G.K. Chesterton, you know,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. the point of fantasy is that monsters, uh, dragons can be beaten right i'm paraphrasing sorry sorry (laughs) gk you've been dead for a long time buddy you can probably take it
1: (laughs) yeah he's not even concerned enough to roll in his grave right now anyway um yeah
0: so 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 just gonna get into faceless villains but if you want to say more monsters
1: nope i was that's where i was going to
0: so so faceless villains um is sort of opposition by bureaucracy. Um, the the physical absence of Sauron in Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I mean, in the movies, we see him in the opening, and then not again.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh,
0: other than sort of shots of the lidless eye that's supposed to be Sauron's presence, mm-hmm. e- even that is largely a sort of extrapolation by. PJ, which God bless him. It looks great on camera. Um, The
1: other, uh, the other example they give, which is popular with our UK fans is uh, the prisoner. And uh, you know, the, the agent is, is in the, in the village and always looking to find out who number one is and never does. Yep. Um, And so that's sort of your faceless villain. Um, It also gives uh, who else? Oh, Moriarty. Yep um and
0: then that uh, calls to mind for me um uh, not necessarily a villain but a faceless um kind of enigma uh, management in carnival mm. uh, mm-hmm. the management is always behind a, a curtain or a screen right and its nature is so strange and enigmatic it's ultimately supporting the protagonist but, that's really hard to understand in the show mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because it, it sends these mixed signals and everything. Right. It's really, really cool. Um, so, all I want to say to that, and I have to get this out do not be JJ Abrams. <laughs> if you create a mystery box, mm-hmm. I will come to your house and yeah. look very sad at you. Mm-hmm. If you do not have some kind of answer, And when your PCs get to the end of the story, there was never an answer. Mm -hmm. I will be very sad at you please do not do this.
1: Well, and not just that, who cares if Brandis is sad at you, your players will hate you.
0: I don't want to promise your friends will hate you, but I will show up at your house. and You don't want that.
1: I'm saying as players, they will not appreciate that from their GM. They will hate that from their GM. They might not hate you as a person, as a friend to begin with, but
0: not not like I hate J.J. Abrams.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a different podcast, Um, but it's true. Do not leave everything so that there's really no answer. Yep. That is not a good device to use. And you're running an RPG. It's okay to have some loose ends that never end up getting followed up or something like that. But if right. everything in your campaign is a mystery box that just literally has no answer, don't do it. Do not, yep. do not do it. It is not um, a good, fun RPG thing. Yeah.
0: Uh, so the, the description here is still solid, right? When they're mm-hmm. talking about facelessness, you know the the mysterious professional um, that sort of you keep seeing their handiwork, but that's about mm-hmm. it. I think that's all yep. that's all fine. But ultimately you need to give the PCs a way to like engage with them, mm-hmm. maybe track them down, or just like get an edge on them so you screw them over even if it's at a great distance. Just just something. Like, mm-hmm. leave room for a resolution.
1: Right. Yeah. Um,
0: and and I guess that also touches on the, the piece of advice that I want to give of just remember as a DM that you are playing with all the cards. For you, every, every card is face up. Mm-hmm. For the PCs, only their own hand is face mm-hmm. up. Um, right. Just... there is a point at which for your bad guys to lose you are, you have to choose for them to be able to lose yeah. choose that
1: mm-hmm. and it actually gives really good advice um, in here it's talking about the faceless villain as a bureaucrat and it says um, you know basically when you you're 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 creating events and the party doesn't really know what the cause of it is, or even if it's occurring at the, at the beginning, right? It says, if you want to implement this approach, it is easiest to string together a series of short adventures where several share the same organizing principle and point to a common source as a rule. Player characters are intolerant of ambiguity. If you give them two clues, they'll misinterpret them both. If you toss in a red herring, they'll be loath to give it up. Right? So, in other words, be careful. That's that, that's that other side of that mystery box, right? Mm-hmm. Or the other side of, of trying to give clues and you're not being specific enough or or obvious enough. And you know, I, I always say, I have said this many times on many different podcasts or many different po- blog posts or whatnot, but what is obvious to you as the DM is never as obvious to the players. It doesn't matter how smart your players are. Or, or how smart you are, right? It, that's it's not, it's not about intelligence or smarts or the ability to think critically. It's about the fact that the DM has it all in front of them. yep. And the players do not, no matter what, no matter yep. what, that's the case. And so if you throw a clue out and then three sessions go by and then you throw another clue out that's related and they don't immediately connect it, do not get mad at them.
0: Oh, my God. No, indeed.
1: Just remind them, remind them, well, you know, in game, this was only a week ago and your character would recognize that symbol. Just because the player who the last time there was a session was a month ago, doesn't remember it. Doesn't mean you punish them for that, right? Do not punish them for that. And that's kind of what they're getting at here. That if you want to go, this is why this is in the advanced chapter. If you want to go with the faceless bureaucracy or the faceless professional, so that the party doesn't even know who they're looking for or what they're looking for. You have to give them enough clues and breadcrumbs without very many red herrings, if any at all, so that they can actually find their way through the maze. Because if you don't, it's just going to seem very confusing and unfulfilling. Yep. Yep.
0: I agree with that.
1: And then it moves on to the sympathetic enemy.
0: Yep. And and this is, this is one that I, I have a, Deep love of just because uh, feeling conflicting things about an enemy and needing to make a decision is a is a good moment to me.
1: Mm-hmm. And they they actually go into that in this section just a tiny bit, and then I think later on they talk about it a great uh, in, at much greater detail actually. Um. Uh. And I don't I'm not I don't remember why it's split or whatnot, but it's funny because they even say, look, we told you not to make the villain sympathetic because the villain sympathetic is just an enemy, not a real true villain. And so they're trying to stick really closely to this, you know, almost arbitrary definition that they set in the beginning. But, you know, I understand why they're doing it. They're trying to say this is not in opposition to what we said before. It's just a different way to think about this material.
0: So. I'd like to tell a story from from Dust to Dust. Please do. Uh, that relates to this very specifically, and I'll say if this winds up being terrible, you can cut it. It's okay. Um, <laughs> okay. It's, it's fine, but um, this is a scene that we ran at the LARP um, where uh, this one villain wanted to have a conversation with the PCs so he could Start to get his hooks into them, and like get his point of view across, and maybe get them to make some bad decisions further down the line, right? That that's his goal. Mm-hmm. Like, his whole modus operandi is the corruptor. It was one of his names. Okay. So he's a fallen angel who works for the the god of evil. That's his deal.
1: Okay.
0: Um, and uh, he has another villain with him at the meal. Who is this werewolf that I play? Um it, werewolves in Dust to Dust are, are corrupted elves, but werewolf, like he's mm-hmm. he's there to to talk, not to fight. He's gonna you know behave himself and um it be as interesting as possible because he's abiding by the fallen angels rules. So the the party that winds up getting invited to, to come includes a, a PC Celestial, basically an Asimur. You can think of that as an okay.
1: Um
0: A Returned who's basically a Revenant uh, and a, a human, um, a human warrior who's also, I think, a Smith. Um, and so the, the the Revenant winds up kind of engaged in the conversation while enjoying the really, really nice Cheese and fruit plate that was laid out, mm-hmm. really top end cheese and fruit plate, <laughs> because the the um, person playing the fallen angel just wanted to go all in. The celestial winds up talking to the fallen angel the whole time, and they are having this conversation about things they remember from when they were in heaven, before one descended and the other fell, and. They used to be friends a long time ago. That's the the pitch, right? Mm-hmm. Or I, I think that Celestial is actually too young, but th- they, they had friends in common from way before. Um, and so the werewolf and the human Smith are just sort of fucking Celestials, man. You <laughs> look at them and like the werewolf doesn't really like humans all that much. As werewolves go, he likes humans fine, but doesn't mm-hmm. like humans a lot much. The, the human has no reason to trust this werewolf, but they're sitting here bonding in the corner talking about no, freaking Celestials. at the worst. <laughs> and it was such a great scene for getting to uh, c- explore Celestials as a culture, getting to explore who naturally sympathizes with each other in this scene. Um who cares about various things. Like, I I don't know how well you could recreate that in your average tabletop game, but man, did it cook in the moment. Oh boy, was I happy with that scene. <laughs> so that's a, it's a long story, but uh, the, the short version is I really love sympathetic enemies and they are perfectly good villains because mm-hmm. at some point, the bad guy does the thing that you just can't let go. Even though you're sympathetic to them, they did something that you just can't let go. Right. You can't and, let them off the hook for it.
1: Right. And so this, the way that this book is dealing with that is it's basically saying a sympathetic enemy is not a villain until the crimes that they commit are worse than what was done to them. Right? What, what, as long as whatever they do is worse than what was done to them to basically make them who they are, then they have now transitioned from enemy into villain. Because eventually your sympathy has a line, like what you just said, right? There's yep. a line that now has been crossed, and you can still have this modicum of sympathy for them, but it's not going to extend to letting them survive, or letting them not get arrested or whatever the, whatever the resolution is for the, for the arc, right. You can't let them do that. And at that point now they qualify as a villain because their crimes have surpassed the sympathy that you could produce for their backstory or likability or whatever the commonality is that makes you have sympathy for them. Yep. Right. And so that's, you know, that's, that's where this is going and it provides A couple of examples, it it, it basically says, look, you know, there's a couple of um, sort of in in films and literature, there are two sort of main types of sympathetic enemies that arise that are quite common. And the one is the enemy warrior, right? You know, this is the so-called warrior who, you know, if things were different, if there was a slight twist of fate, you might be fighting next to this person instead of on the opposite side, right? Um, And then there's the misunderstood monster. Which is, of course, you know, um, a a creature that is not really set up in terms of the way their brain works. It's it's
0: not morally responsible for its actions.
1: Right. Because it's just a a monster or a created, you know, the examples they give are, uh, what is it? The rampaging monster who destroyed Tokyo because it can't find its baby. And... Um, Dr. Frankenstein's monster, which is you know childlike,
0: and creates—that seems wrong to me.
1: That that monster
0: is a genius. Uh, Uh, Childlike (laughs) seems. Sorry, I really like that book. Anyway,
1: I'm just saying. I'm just saying this is the examples they're giving because they're trying to say. You know, this is a creature that is not making a moral or ethical choice when it decides to do something that damages civilization or humanoids or you know, whatever. It has not made a choice, it is just living its life. Right. Sure. And so you can have some sympathy for the situation it's in, right? It's not really to blame for its actions. Uh, It's rampaging through Tokyo because it's looking for its baby and it doesn't know what else to do. And it's kind of hysterical. Like it does, it does not know what it has, no other options, but, and you can have sympathy for that, but it's destroying people and buildings and, you know, everything. So you have to get rid of it or try to find a way to make it stop doing those things. And so those are the sort of two examples that it gives you. And again, it tries to tell you, you know, that you, that those can be sympathetic enemies and not the major end-all big bad villain of your game. But as soon as it surpasses the line, whatever the line is, and it'll be different depending, right, then it's passed over into villain territory. And this chapter also talks about nature as a villain.
0: And, you know, uh, protagonist versus nature. Is absolutely important within literature. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I haven't run *Rime of the Frost Maiden*. What I see in there tells me that I would have a I would really struggle to make uh, nature as villain stick. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Just because the the mechanics around surviving cold weather. Uh, don't suck. feel to me like they'd be fun at the table. <laughs> they suck. <laughs> well, they
1: they suck. They uh, they're too weak and too strong at the same time.
0: Yeah, there you go. Um,
1: they are not conducive to uh a lot of fun at the table. I have tried to do something to make them in in my in my rhyme game. I've tried to make them consequential, uh-huh. but not. Game stopping, but but what that means is the only way to really hurt the party with the environment in in fifth edition D anD D is with exhaustion. And as you know, exhaustion is a vicious spiral. Yep, and it creates an unfun situation if well, anybody it, is exhausted, especially more than one level for any length it, of time.
0: It's so brutal right at the gate, yeah. right? So brutal. Um, for sure. So,
1: so, 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 but so all that to say, you know, when I, when I had my session zero for the rhyme game, I made it clear that these are the, you know, because the environment is an enemy, that is something that is on the table and will affect you no matter what your situation is. You know, you're not just going to be able to roll a DC 10 con check and get away from the effect of negative 45 degrees all the time. Like sure. the, it, sure. it doesn't quite work like that. It has to be a little more elaborated than yep. that. Um, but uh, at the agree. same time, I don't want to hobble them with constant exhaustion all the time, but I got to be honest and tell you that during certain parts of the adventure, they have been hobbled by constant exhaustion, not every single one of them every time, but, um, it, that's just the way that it it's, you know, that it has fallen out. So anyway, that's, that's kind of a different, uh, topic
0: no, I, I feel yeah, and like where, where I'm standing is just um the exhaustion devil might need revision for me to feel great about it
1: mm-hmm. yeah, it's, yeah,
0: it might not be for me right now,
1: yeah um, well, and I, and I guess what I'm saying is nature as villain is great in concept mm-hmm. and in literature and sometimes in movies. it's not always great in RPG,
0: yep, like. Okay. Uh, Cholt outside of Port Nanzaru is just fantastically dangerous. Mm -hmm. That's landing pretty well. Um, There's a fair bit of, did you put on your insect repellent? If no, son, you messed up.
1: Right. Um, you know, it's it's sort of like uh, walking into uh, the hills and you hear a, a, a wonderful, melodious sound. Did you put wax in your ears before you left? Because if not, mm-hmm. you got to roll a save versus that harpy's song,
0: right? Right. Like, it's important to get some warnings before you. It's important, uh, right? And so try to you know exactly sail too close,
1: right? And that's kind of, but that's easier to do when you have specific, you know acute events Mm -hmm. versus an entire landscape that is just devastatingly tough so you know they don't actually spend very much time on nature as villain other than just making the point that you know, I for me, I find it really funny they go this whole way about talking about sympathetic enemies and how they're not villains, they're not villains, they're not villains, and then here's nature as a villain, but it really doesn't elaborate on how you can use nature as a villain to actually fulfill the requirements of the word villain as they right. lay them out in the first chapter.
0: Right now, what I, what they what they do touch on that is is really good, like. The text says, while natural disasters do not really constitute villains as defined, the blind, mm-hmm. blinded difference to human life which such forces embody body creates an exciting adversary. Okay, yes. Um, like disa- Disaster movies uh, where you have like an event timeline could work really, really well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where it's just, hey, we've got an event timeline, we're trying to get people to safety and what constitutes safety keeps changing at these event markers. Right. That's a that's a very workable thing. Right. Right.
1: Well, and the thing is, that's that's kind of my thing, though. It doesn't really, it doesn't actually say that, right? It it. I wish this section, this particular little section, had said, "Let's uh, let's let's talk about how why nature isn't really a villain because of the sort of unthinkingness of it. It's it's not a main villain, but let's." let's talk about how you could use it as a villain and maybe what to look out for. Sure. They just need a couple more paragraphs, I guess is the thing.
0: Yeah. Um, so. so. So sure. So public opinion is villain uh, in, um, in, in your literature class, this was framed as a protagonist versus society. Right.
1: Um, mm-hmm. Oh, also I just want to point out. Yes, please. That they talk about the Donner Party getting trapped in ice and cold yep, in the Rockies. Sure. I don't think they were trapped in the Rockies. Is it Sierra Nevada's? I believe so. (laughs) The, the, The accuracy
0: of where the dinner party occurred is not the most important thing. Uh, Mr. Green.
1: No, but someone who grew up in California, I immediately noticed that I'm like the Rockies. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, so in, uh, in Calamity LARP is a weird West LARP in Georgia. uh, There's a a PC whose, whose backstory is like being one of the Donner party who survived. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: He, He comes back with a hankering.
1: Oh yeah. Well, see, that's actually one of the things that can happen in rhyme. One nice. of the secret yeah. backgrounds is that you were on a ship, and it you got basically cra- you crashed, and you're all going to freeze to death and starve. And to stay alive, you started eating the ones who froze first. <laughs> so right. you're, you have a cannibal background. None of my just, players have that one, but
0: I just I just need to say, "Alive" is one of the few movies I have ever turned off because I was so freaked out by knowing what was coming.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: I rented that at one point and just <laughs> couldn't get past my, my sense of total dread of what was coming.
1: Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Anyway. So do you want to start the public opinion? <laughs> yeah,
0: <in>? Sure. <laughs> so, so we get to public opinion as villain, which your literature class would have framed to you as protagonist versus society, mm-hmm. right? Society is the source of opposition.
1: Yeah. Um, and if you're not an academic English major, you might just think of this as mob rule
0: just to a, a large degree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the text is going to get into that with the danger of the mob. Um, and yeah, there is something a lot like uh, rules text under rolling the dice here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's just in paragraph format. Yeah. Not, not the most findable or
1: right like, readable thing in the world, but it doesn't even, stick out i mean yep yeah because the other um, thing is rolling the dice is also an idiom for taking a chance right sure. or yes. or or taking a chance and moving forward and so it doesn't even you know evoke in me the oh that's a rules text yeah
0: right um but you know there's there's a lot of space for you know you're accused of a crime
1: mm-hmm. now
0: public opinion is your problem right and you know there's there's plenty of room for story there.
1: Yeah. Um, I do like what it mentions about rumors and how they often have one point, one source point. And yeah. yet once the rumor gets away from the source, even getting to the source and trying to have them correct the in the invalid portion of the rumor, right? The the false portion uh-huh. of the rumor, uh-huh. it's too late. Uh-huh. It has got out of their control.
0: Yeah, Sam, I live in 2021 and I've heard know. about Q and on.
1: Right, but I, I'm just saying. Like, it's, it's I was brutal. reading this, and I'm just like, yeah, yeah, uh huh, yeah, reality, uh huh, reality, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, reality. It go go yeah. on, tell me, tell yeah. me another. Uh huh, yeah, uh-huh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, one of these one of these topics is pundits are saying, you know, which oh, no. is exactly speaks to how that sort of thing works. I mean, it really does. If there is one sort of figure in authority or that's thought to be an authority or is thought to be a trusted news source and they say something Uh, then that information filters out and it affects the entire crowd of people that are susceptible to hearing that and here it is
0: uh, that that brings us to the end of um, public opinion as villain and then we Mm -hmm. get into villains for every alignment which is more nuance on villains need to be evil they really don't
1: And here's what I like about this section. And you and I spar on alignment a little bit because we have slightly different opinions about uh, how alignment, how important alignment is or should be. But the thing I like about this section is it points out that, I'm trying to find it in the text, but it basically points out that every DM and every player, or maybe it says every like table conceives of alignment in their own way right and will put certain pre those certain preconceived notions of what alignment means onto that creature or that party or that npc or that whoever you're talking about that villain in this case Um, and so it's important to think about how you might change the perception of that or how you might reconceive that in everybody's minds and know that you don't have to be absolutely evil to be a villain. You can be you know, a different alignment. And then it, it provides these sort of short little paragraphs of, here's what it would mean if you were neutral good and you ended up becoming a villain. Here's what that would mean. Would you still be neutral good? Well, in your mind, you probably would, but your act the actions that you're taking might be seen as evil from another standpoint. For sure. Um, and it also talks about n- neutral villains, which is a really interesting
0: question. Right. And, and especially with neutral good, like it has a little bit of work to do to make neutral good into a villain. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And so it's really more about uh, violating law and sort of social mores mm-hmm. than doing what's wrong. Right. Right.
1: And it even says, you know, this alignment is the least likely to breed a villain for this reason. Right. Yep. I do like the way that it talks about uh, when you think about ethical dimensions of order, law and chaos. Mm -hmm. Right. The, The three areas that the different the different ways to conceive of this as a sort of worldview or philosophy is. Balance seeking, right? The neutral, the person who's neutral wants to seek balance or disinterest, as in, I don't care what everybody else is doing; only I'm important. Or yep. opportunistic. It doesn't matter to me what the balance of good versus evil, as long as I can get something out of whichever one is prevailing at the time.
0: Yep, and this is this is some nice notes in building toward the changes in alignment definition mm-hmm. in uh, especially. 4E and 5E with the unaligned
1: alignment. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Right. And because the thing is, like, when you think about neutral, you've got that ethical portion, then you've got the moral portion. Does it right. mean you're not non-jud- non-judgmental or does it mean you're selfish, actually? Right? Like, selfishness is often, often thought of as chaotic, but maybe that's actually neutral because you might think that it's good to have good and evil in, you know, both in the, in the same area. Anyway, uh, yeah.
0: You don't need to have a little bit of sickness to also have health. That's not how <laughs> sickness works.
1: Right, right. I'm just saying, like it's presenting these as, you know, n- neutrality is often seen as, at least when I was younger, neutrality was the easy quote easy. Yeah. One, right? Oh, well, that means you can let evil things happen and you can let good things happen and you're not required to intervene because you're neutral. But what it's saying is it's a little more nuanced than that. And that's not really how that alignment works. So right. other than law, you know, lawful versus chaotic and good versus evil, if you look just at neutral, it's not just a catch-all, which is why fourth edition – Used unaligned instead of a neutral as a, as a term, right? Yep, and uh,
0: the, the bit on uh moral relativism, I actually especially appreciate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, where uh, who's so obsessed with open mindedness and desire a desire to be non judgmental that he becomes morally lazy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That, that checks
1: mm-hmm.
0: out, right? The, the, um, Chidi in The Good Place appreciates you, <laughs>
1: uh,
0: Kirk <laughs> yeah, Kirk he appreciates you, yeah. And any day you can get William Jackson Harper to appreciate you, that's a good day. Even if (laughs) it's like two decades later, no worries. You did good, buddy.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
0: Um, But anyway, this is a a good, solid section. I actually really appreciate this. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a, like, for all the problems I have with alignment, uh, Mm -hmm. this is like getting right to the bone. Mm-hmm. With, with those problems and kind of giving it a good hard look and saying, uh, yeah, someone being lawful good is not a reason they aren't a villain, and you might not have to kill them.
1: Right. Yeah. And that. And that. And the thing I like about this is it's not just trying to make that point. It doesn't just say, oh well, recognize that somebody lawful good could be a villain it's actually saying here's how it, and they do it in the same sort of language that they do in the first chapter, when they talk about the motivation and how it lists these motivations and talks about them in a normal person, a non-villain, this motivation isn't a bad thing, but but the villain goes to the extreme. Right. And sort of makes that motivation a fail state. And that's, that becomes their, what they are, Going towards, and that's the kind of the same thing here. Lawful good in itself, of course, isn't going to just produce villains willy nilly. But a lawful good PC or NPC or individual who has cer- certain events occur and makes certain choices, they're still lawful good, but now they have bumped into the extreme.
0: And I might have to question whether they are still lawful good.
1: So it makes the point, though, that if you you were to ask them, they would say they're still lawful good.
0: Okay, but you have to ask their their nominal DM because players don't get to choose their alignment. Mm -hmm. And so the the NPC's perspective is not relevant to their alignment. The DM's perspective outside of them uh, is what's relevant to their alignment. And as a result, the person they're describing needs to have fallen into lawful evil.
1: Right, right. Well, and it it says that. So I don't, don't think that I'm, I'm I'm not trying to say it doesn't say that. In fact, it says, remember that what a villain believes to be his alignment may be at odds with what you as the DM know to be the truth. Right. And which is, which is, that's kind of what I like about the section is they're showing how a lawful good individual could become a villain Still try to convince the PCs from the NPC perspective, hey, I'm lawful good, I'm doing the good thing here, but yet they're still a villain, and, and the DM knows
0: yeah, for sure. that they
1: aren't actually lawful good anymore because they've they've gone past that borderland into extremity, right? So anyway, it's a good discussion, and it's only like it two or three pages, and they end with a really nice chart to remind you of the different extremes of the the nine squares in the alignment chart you know um and then that's the end of the chapter
0: yep yep that's a that's a really solid chapter
1: it is a really solid um, chapter. it's i think it's the longest chapter in the book actually
0: that that may be so um uh, it, it's bulky but it is a really good read on yeah. <laughs> thinking about villainy in dnd mm-hmm. and um know something i really do appreciate about this book in context of the, the, the discourse on D&D and like, evil races, since like, Watsi is formally washing its hands of evil races now, right?
1: right.
0: Um, this book doesn't have really a lot of apparent truck with that. Mm-hmm. And so it certainly highlights for me, you know... TSR did have people writing who saw what a, like what a narratively lazy moment that was uh, in 94. And they just didn't have the like intestinal fortitude to fix it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, sure. Let's check on 27 years and see how you feel.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is in some ways, this is a different conversation, but you know, this book was being written for people who are using the system as is. And the system in second edition had alignment and it had classes that were alignment locked. Yep. And so therefore it's going to have NPCs that are quote alignment locked. And this actually, this book is trying to expand on just the same way that it expanded on what is a monster. You know, when you read the monster entry in the monsters compendium, And try to think of that as a villain. It's expanding on alignment in the same kind of way where it says, You think you know about alignment. If you're just going by what's in the PHB and the DMG, think again. Like this is a little more nuanced. And even though you probably have preconceived notions, there are other ways to expand on this that are still valid and that still matter and that don't break your game just because something is supposed to be, quote, supposed to be a certain alignment.
0: So, uh, that is going to bring us to the end of chapter seven and the end of tonight's episode uh this has been a really strong pair of chapters all told um with interesting stuff to say one very brief and one more extensive but uh the book is definitely holding position very well i would say um
1: it is um again it's not an easy read it's it's uh it's it's i don't want to say it's not an enjoyable read because that's not what i mean no it's it's thoughtful it's right? a very thoughtful read and it and some of the things that it says it's in just two or three paragraphs or in maybe one whole page and these are the types of things you know as i read through this book some of these entries some of these sections i just think to myself man that would be a great, concise blog post about that. Yep. And I don't mean that as a derogatory statement as, as in this shouldn't be a book. It's just a bunch of blog posts. That's not what I mean. What I mean is it's that type of blog post where, you know, sometimes you read a blog post from someone and you just think, wow, that's really interesting. I need to think on that for a few days and then come back to it and think like it doesn't happen all that often for me. Um, i like, I, I read blog posts that are interesting all the time. I, I just mean the whole, like, let me think about that and then come back to this in a couple of days, but this book, at least, especially these last two chapters are full of that. Uh-huh. Yep. And so it's not a quick or easy read. I mean, it's an easy read in terms of understanding it's, but it's, it like is making my mind work. It's making my mind work. And so in a, in, in a good way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I would would agree with that. I mean, the the fact of the matter is I'm uh, a few posts into uh, a series that is very much like what's going on here, Mm -hmm. except that I'm specifically working with one of the tables that we talked about in Chapter 4. Okay. I mean, during the episode of uh, Chapter 4 of the DMG, Mm -hmm. uh, I said to uh, Rabbit and Colin, hey, you want to work with me to expand this into a book? And then I just, mm-hmm. since they said, uh, uh, no, dude. Um, <laughs> are you are you kidding? No, stop. I, I just had to start into a blog post series and yeah. we'll see if that you know, becomes anything more. Um, yeah, But the, the point I'm trying to make is that uh, these are things that are going to get rediscussed and reanalyzed. And honestly, for all the conversations that we've been stuck rehashing for 47 years. Uh, This is one of the better, Mm -hmm. right? This is, uh, this is, you know, worthwhile philosophical stuff um, that, I mean, I don't want to say that it's high philosophy, but just getting gaming to engage more thoughtfully with the problem of evil is worth doing. That's Mm -hmm. fine. That's good.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah but the thing is it's the reason why you're saying it's not high philosophy is because it's it's addressing these issues in a way that has direct application to your game and so there's a lot that i think could be it could be expanded into a more sort of higher philosophy style discussion yep. but it's purposefully not because it's yep. meant to be useful for your game i'm not sure any game book I to take that back. I'm not sure the majority of D and D style game books would ever qualify as high philosophy. Right. Um, that doesn't yes. mean there isn't philosophical content in some of them, but it's written as a way for you to be useful at your gaming table, not as a philosophical treatise. And right. this has that same thing. So this doesn't rise up to the level of, you know, philosophical text. But for a game supplement, it gets really deep into some topics, but relatively concisely.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the fact of the matter is, um, villains from other alignments is basically like saying um, you're never so pure that you can't commit harm. Right. Or, or maybe right. there there actually aren't. Good or bad people, just good or bad actions. Right. Now, obviously it, it can't fully engage with that idea because it's writing in a second ed frame where alignment right. exists.
1: Of course. But yeah. And that's kind of the point I was trying to get at is it gets as close as it can to saying, here's what it means to have an alignment system, and yet your villain is actually not beholden to any of those. Right. Your villain is a villain because of other characteristics. It's not really because of the alignment.
0: Correct. Uh, And your PCs, like you can't really motivate your PCs to do all the work of tracking someone down and fighting them because it says evil on their character card. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're going to motivate them by their actions. Mm -hmm. And the book definitely understands that. That it is about action first,
1: right? And that's why there's actually so many vignettes in there as example,
0: and, and action revealing nature,
1: mm-hmm. right? Um,
0: right? And also nature driving action. Mm-hmm. Both that goes both ways, but it isn't because of what it says in the character sheet. It's because you know, your your PCs are maybe offended on a moral level by those actions. Or maybe they are opportunists to see someone who is now outside the the protections of society mm-hmm. uh, because of their crimes or whatever, right? Yep. So good stuff.
1: Good stuff. Yeah, really good stuff.
0: So uh, I think we're going to wrap it here. Um, and so, Sam, where can our listeners find you?
1: Oh, you can find me on rpgmusings.com. That's my website. Or you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel. And you can find me on the Tome Show, of course. You can find my D&D Brief uh, stream, which is about to wrap up here in the next couple weeks, which is posted on the Tome Show under Actual Play. And, of course, you can find me on Edition Wars. What about you? Uh, Well,
0: you can find me on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. I also write for Tribality.com. My personal blog is com, and my Patreon is brandisstoddard. The Patreon and the personal blog have been uh, very sadly neglected thus far in December but uh, I've had some, some writing projects that have weighed heavily upon my soul. And so this will bring us to the end of the 8th day with Maids a-Milking. Tomorrow Ladies Dancing! come one come all i guess
1: maybe yeah sure